Great. Okay, so what we're going to do right now is get into the Bible. So if you guys have your Bible, I want you to open up to the book of Acts, chapter 4. If you guys don't have one, you can raise a hand. We have ushers that would love to get you guys a Bible. Acts, chapter 4. Um, I'm going to read uh, the first 12 verses, and uh, if you guys wouldn't mind, let's all stand. It's a way of just simply showing respect to God and His Word, what He has to say, the story, this narrative that we find ourselves in, or at least one in which we want to really understand better. So let me read it, and then I'll pray, and we'll get to work. Acts 4 starts off like this. Uh, the backstory, real quick, is uh, Peter and John, these early church disciples, followers of Jesus, uh, they go up to this place called the Temple. I'll show you actually a photo of what that looks like in a moment. Um, at this time called the Hour of Prayer. And there was a crippled man that was there at the gate. He'd been there for many, many years. We're told that he's in his mid-40s. Um, and he asks for money, which is kind of what he's done on a repetitive type of a way every day for maybe three decades. So you imagine he's just a part of the actual landscape. So Peter and John respond by saying, we don't have any money, uh, but what we do have is Jesus. Um, and they stretch out their hand, they grab a hold of this guy who's been crippled, and they, they pick him up to his feet. And he uh, was once outcast, not able to actually go into the Temple Mount. For the very first time of his life, he stands up and actually begins to leap and run and jump. He enters into the temple. There's, imagine there's this massive commotion, uh, big to-do that's going on, and questions are circulating and being asked as to who did this, what happened, how did this take place. And Peter and John begin to stand up, and they begin to respond and answer. And the main uh, response or answer that they give back to the question is Jesus. Jesus is the one who is responsible for taking this man that was once crippled and making him whole. And that's kind of where we find ourselves, is the beginning of chapter 4 are the religious leaders who their main job was to basically um, occupy and control and move and take care of and steward everything that takes place on that temple mount. These guys are obviously um, troubled by what's happening, so they pull Peter and John aside and they begin to question him. That's where we find ourselves in the story. So chapter 4, verse 1 starts like this. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, they all came upon them. This basically is a a description of all the various strata of leaders within that temple system. The Sadducees, they would have been the least religious, so they were religious. They would have been more aristocrats. They would have been the power brokers of the day. Um, And we also see the captain of the temple, which would have been they had sort of a military leg or arm that was uh, responsible for making sure there are no uprisings. They were directly uh, answerable to the the Romans, and the Romans made sure that there was ever any type of, um, uh, you know, throwing stones or any type of craziness or terrorism going on on Temple Mount. These guys would have been responsible. So you can imagine there was great incentive to make sure that there was always peace and calm in the Temple Mount, lest they, you know, they get crucified because... You know, you don't want to cross the Romans. You know what happens when you cross the Romans? You get crucified. So what happens is these chief priests, these captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, they come out upon them. Verse 2, it says, They were greatly annoyed because they, Peter and John, were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So that's the central corpus of the message. They were proclaiming that there was a resurrection, that something happened, that there is life after death uh, that's tangible, real, and they're saying that this resurrection actually is linked to, uh, to Jesus, that Jesus is 
really the leader of, the forerunner of this movement that finds itself situated in what we would call resurrection. And it says, and they were annoyed by that. It says, and they then arrested them and put them in custody until the next day uh, for it was already evening. So just imagine, Peter and John, these guys were, uh, for the most part, blue-collar, unskilled, uneducated, untrained workers. Um, there's a lot of debate as to how old these people were, but imagine them maybe either in their late teens, early 20s. A lot of scholars uh, would argue that they were around that age range. So imagine, here these guys are, and they didn't grow up in the city. All right, these are not city boys. They didn't grow up in Jerusalem. They grew up in what would have been the equivalent to the outskirts of Santa Margarita. All right? They grew up in this place called Galilee. They grew up, and their job was to fish. That was their job. And they inherited that from mom and dad. And so these were guys that literally lived in the outskirts of Santa Margarita. Uh, mom and dad were doomsday packers. And so here they are being swept up in this movement, this ministry called Jesus. And here they find themselves in the center of or the heart of the entire system of Judaism. And they're standing in front of the, the power brokers of Judaism. It would have been equivalent to standing in front of the Pope, um, the cardinals, and the entire uh, body of religious leaders in, in Rome, um, about to be uh, perhaps either questioned or even potentially put to death. Because, again, it was just a few months prior that Jesus would have found himself in the exact same place, and what happened with Jesus, it didn't go so well, right? Jesus was executed, he was put to death, and here are these guys, no doubt, these uh, unskilled, uneducated, untrained uh, you know, out back type of country folk are literally facing one of the most trialsome, terrible scenarios in their entire life. But the story doesn't end there. It says, and then they were arrested and they put them in custody until the next day. But many of those who had heard the word believed and number came to about 5,000. So this movement is beginning to get traction. Verse Five, on the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the priestly family. So again, this is, these names mean nothing to us, but if you would have been in the first century reading these names, it, it would have been equivalent to, uh, uh, you know, and, and Putin hung out there, and all the re- world leaders, and the religious leaders that represented by various types of traditions or religions, we're all there. So the various heads and power brokers would have been the ones that would have been listed here. So here they are in front of all these power brokers. It says in verse 7, and they had set them in the middle, and they inquired by what power, or more specifically, by what name did you do this thing? Verse 8 says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to this crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus is a stone that, the, that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is God's word. God, we pray right now that you would open our eyes to see all the implications of this, that you would help us to see uh, the the goodness of Jesus, and at the same time, how Jesus has this tendency to trouble us, not because of any trouble with him, but because of the stuff that we hold on to. 
the stuff that we oftentimes associate with, the stuff that we oftentimes cling to or trust in. So God, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus with clear eyes and not fabricate an image or a picture of Jesus that we wish would fit our sensibilities. So God, we pray that you would help us to approach the text, the Bible, in a way that would just speak clearly to us. And as a result of that, God, change us, transform us to be the people that you want to remake and refashion according to your purposes. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all grab a seat? Um, I normally don't do this, but I, as I was studying this and preparing for this, um, a thought kind of came to my mind that, um, and what, what I normally don't do is I normally don't like start my sermon out by saying, the message of my title is this, but I'm, I'm going to actually do that today, because um, the, there's a message that just sort of really simply arises out of the text here that I think um, it's kind of, I, I want to kind of lead with that, and it's really this idea that it's the problem of Jesus, or the problem with Jesus, and that's kind of the message that I, I want to segue or lead into, is because Jesus is really a problem to these religious leaders, and that becomes really apparent and obvious within a story, because we're told that the religious leaders were greatly annoyed by, the relig- by Peter and John. And not so much by Peter and John, but really more so by what Peter and John were representing. Remember? Uh, they were representing uh, the, a miracle that happened through Jesus. So the real problem is not so much with Peter and John. Uh, it's with Jesus. And, but the question, I think, that needs to be unpacked a little bit further is why does Jesus represent this problem. And to even stretch it a little bit further, if, if it's possible for these religious leaders to have a problem with Jesus, is it possible for you and I to have a problem with Jesus? Is it possible for Jesus to actually represent a problem for you and I? And in what context is Jesus really a problem for us? Because I, I think part of the problem is when we approach the Bible, we have a tendency to create an image or a depiction of God or Jesus in ways that would really fit our liking better. So what we do is we kind of read selectively. We read in an edited type of version. We like pit, uh, cut and pick and select different elements of Jesus that really resonate with us and other parts of Jesus that really don't resonate with us or that are troublesome or problemsome. Um, we push them aside. We shove that off into the margins because we're like, I don't really like that Jesus. The Jesus that's like, you know, creating food and telling people to love their neighbors, like, it's okay. The, the, the Jesus that says uh, to love your enemies, I don't really like that Jesus. But the Jesus that like promises the kingdom to all the poor, like that, that's a good Jesus because I don't have any money. So what we do is we kind of selectively pick and choose Je- uh, elements of Jesus that we like. And the problem with that is, is you're actually creating your own Jesus. The problem with that is, is a Jesus that you create is powerless to actually save you. So you have to accept Jesus on the terms that he gives, or that he reveals of himself. So what we find with that is that the Jesus that is being put on display in the story of the book of Acts is a Jesus that actually creates problems for a large segment of people. But on the flip side, it's also a Jesus that's extremely attractive, because we're told that 5,000 people turn to him. So we have to address this reality and try to understand a little bit about it and then put it into our context and begin to ask ourselves, are, are we in danger? Are you and I in danger of somehow maybe either creating a false Jesus, one that is more to our liking, um, and, and, and the flip side of that is, is it possible that the real Jesus really troubles us? And if so, 
What, what are we going to do about it? So with that, two things we'll take a look at here this morning is really kind of the, the title, like I mentioned, which is the problem of Jesus, and then I'll finish really with the power of Jesus. And again, sorry for the alliteration. I normally don't do this, but it just kind of came out this way. Um, but the, the, the problem of Jesus, problem of Jesus, and then the power of Jesus, because we see the religious, uh, Peter and John actually stand up to the religious leaders with this incredible amount of power. We'll get to that in a second here. So first of all, take a look at the problem with Jesus. And, and I want to lead with a question and an answer, all right? So the question is something like this. I just, I'll read what I had written down. Uh, wouldn't it be good news or great news to know that God was alive and active and was providing an amazing rescue operation through his chosen Messiah, Jesus? So, I mean, if you were to just pause right now and just think, wouldn't it be really good news? So here, if here you are, someone were to come to you and be like, hey, guess what? God's coming and God's rescuing. God's going to set this whole broken world to right. Like, wouldn't that be really good news? And in some ways, the answer would be yes. I mean, Jesus actually, in uh, his, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Um, what, what Jesus basically did by that simple statement is he completely upended and subverted the entire social structure. Because I, I think, really, if we're really honest with ourselves, who inherits the kingdom, or who inherits the earth? In, in our world, in our system, who inherits the earth? Uh, the one with the greatest votes, the one with the biggest military, the one who has the capacity to carpet bomb, that's who inherits the earth. All right, just in case you're wondering, like, who inherits the earth? It's not a trick question. It's, it's a complete, honest, and easy question to answer. It's that the one who has the greatest power is the one who inherits the earth. Jesus says, nope, not my kingdom. In my kingdom, the one who inherits the earth is the one who's poor in spirit. Completely subverts everything. He messes everything up. So, Again, the question is, wouldn't it be great news if God was alive and active and providing this amazing rescue operation through his chosen Messiah, Jesus? And really the answer to that is no. Not if you're already in power or if you're clinging or trusting in objects which are passing away. So if you're already in power and the power positions that you hold actually exercise subversion over the weak and crush the oppressed and steal from the, the, the weak and... Uh, is, and if you're part of that system, or if you are a consumer of the goods that the system creates, right? let's just hypothetically call this America, that consumes goods that are created cheap by cheap labor, by a system that's out there, if we hold on to, if we cling to, if we trust to a system that is actually at the very core and fabric of its being, dying, breaking away, falling apart. And if God says, hey, I'm coming, and I'm subverting the whole order, and I'm creating a brand new kingdom, that's really, really bad news if you're part of that broken system. Does that make sense? If you're holding on to things that are broken, that's really bad news. And this is really the idea. So this is what, what you begin to get a little bit of a glimpse into why Jesus presented this massive problem to the religious system. So with that, I want to take a look a little bit about understanding what the religious system is and what it represents and so on and so forth. So next slide, I'll show you a little picture of the, what's called the Temple Mount. And at the center of, of Israel was this, this um, depiction of what's called the Temple Mount. Now, this is just a probably a half view, or maybe even really for the most part, a quarter picture of the sum total of this thing. So um, this is actually taken from a little video clip that I found on YouTube, and the, the video was actually really poor quality. Otherwise, I would have shown it. 
Um, and the other problem with it was it was like seven minutes. I didn't want to show you seven minutes of a really poor quality film just to get an idea. So you can go online, check it out yourself. Um, so what I did is I kind of took some screenshots and tried to put together so you can get a little snapshot or a picture of what this looks like. But again, this is sort of a representation of maybe a quarter of the size of this whole thing. Um, what's nice about the video is it actually kind of does like a little 3D rendering. You can kind of walk through and you get this little picture of what's going on. So take a look at the very, very center of the picture right there. You see that, that square thing that has, it's, it's black. It looks like it goes down. That's actually a staircase that goes down to, and there's a couple of those actually all the way around, that go down this massive underground structure um, that, that opens up to this massive upper ground, upper level structure. And uh, that big, large thing over off into the right of where you guys are sitting, uh, you see that that's actually what's called the temple, you know, Temple Mount. Um, and so you'd imagine um, that this could hold a lot of people. And to some degree, they did a fairly decent job of kind of putting it to scale, which it gives you this impression that the, it shows you the enormity of this thing. So if you think of it this way, um, all cultures, all civilizations are oftentimes identified by symbols. So if I were to ask you, what is a good symbol that identifies America, what would you say? Flag, what else? I think there's some other symbols as well. So I think flag's a great one. What else? Eagle, that's eagle. Um, what else? What did you say? Money? CLC, I don't know, I didn't hear that. But, um, so let's just say, for example, the, the, the bald eagle. That's kind of a, uh, a good symbol of America. So when oftentimes people think about a symbol of America, they think of like an eagle, because it's, 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 a, it's a bird that roams free. It doesn't really fly in a pack or a school or whatever you call it, a group of birds, a flock of birds or whatever. I guess it would be like a flock of seagulls slash flock of uh, eagles. I don't think they fly together, but get the idea that it's, it's, it's American freedom. I'm free to do what I want to do and be the person that I want to be. I'm an American. I'm bold and proud to be an American. Um, all ancient civilizations, even all modern civilizations, have symbols that they utilize. So I think if you were to look at every other nation or every other ethnic group, everyone has something that would be used to symbolize what they're all about, what they stand for. Well, the Jewish people had the same thing. And the symbol of ancient Judaism would have been the temple. This literally was sort of, uh, it wasn't just simply a practical place they would go to, it was, but it was also the symbol that identified them as a whole. They were a people that laid claim to the temple, which the temple was so significant because the temple was the place where Yahweh resided. Inside this high temple over off to the side, that was where Yahweh lived. It was inside there. There was this place called the Holy of Holies, and inside that Holy of Holies was a very large curtain and a very small box. It was made out of gold, and it was called the Ark of the Covenant. So if you've ever seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, maybe something similar to like that, but um, minus all the Hollywood uh, additions, but you get the idea. The point is, is that inside this temple uh, housed Yahweh, and the people would come from all over the nations into this area and they would basically begin to buy uh, sacrifices that would have been off in these uh, little pillars. This was called Solomon's Colonnade. It was in those areas that oftentimes there would be uh, people selling stuff and uh, you would buy stuff and it would be oftentimes, maybe a lot of scholars believe that was probably the location where Jesus would have uh, formed his whip and then began to uh, drive out the money changers in that particular region saying, my father's house has become a den of thieves. God intended this for it to be a house of prayer for all of the nations. You guys have completely perverted it. And by the way, God's undoing everything that you guys have done. This whole system, what Jesus was saying, he actually goes on to say, he says, 
destroy this temple, in three days I'll rise it up. So when Jesus talked like this, this was shocking news. So again, what I want you to catch is the enormity of this temple. It's not just some sort of small, abstract, out-of-the-way location that one would venture out to. It was the center of everything Jewish. Does that make sense? At the center of this system was a group of men that, that were the leaders of this thing that had perverted justice. These were the men that basically would have been responsible to oversee um, this centralized uh, institution. They would have been the ones that would have administered God's law and brought forth God's justice and a life for God's people. And really, again, if you think of it this way, these religious leaders, which we read in verse 1 and 2, that would have been the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, uh, that these people, they felt threatened by Jesus. And they had every reason to feel threatened by Jesus. Because Jesus boldly said... This whole system's coming to an end. And Jesus' followers basically would say the same thing. That what's coming to replace this whole thing is not another building, but a person. Because in Christ, as if you ever read the New Testament book called the book of Hebrews, it's all about that. It's just basically saying, look, we don't go to a building and purchase an animal and have it offered to the high priest who then slits its throat and drains out the blood, and then from that, we walk away feeling as if our sins are forgiven. We don't go to a building and do that. We go to a person and do that. We go to Jesus and have our sins forgiven. We go to Jesus to have our relationship restored between us and God. We don't go to a building anymore. So what Jesus was saying was that the days are numbered of this temple system. It's coming to an end. It's coming to a close, and that is a big problem, especially if you are one that profits off of this system. You following? So someone comes and says, look, the days are numbered of this whole deal. If you're holding on to that system, you feel very threatened. So in that sense, Jesus becomes this great problem. So I think one of the clues as to the leader's problem with Jesus is this question that, is raised to the disciples. They ask the question to them, is by what name are you doing this, this miracle? And this is a really important question because the, the backstory to why they ask that question is actually found in um, Deuteronomy chapter 13. If you're unfamiliar with it, it's a passage where God warns Moses. He says, when I bring you guys into the land of Israel, there's going to be other prophets, other people that will rise up that will claim name or access to Yahweh, and they will claim access to the story of Yahweh, what we call prophecy, and they're going to mislead and misguide people's hearts intentionally. They're going to do it in a way because they know that if they can play according to someone's uh, um, immature sensibilities, then you can make money. All right, we see this in our day, right? We see this in the context of you know, TV evangelists who are like, you know, I need $65 million to buy a jet because God's work is profoundly being done for me. So people, you know, wholeheartedly are like, all right, great, let's just, let's just do that. And so what happens is while these good-hearted individuals are throwing money at these other charlatans, they're profiting, they're getting rich, they're flying around in first class, while the rest of the people that are supporting them are literally just suffering in eating from paycheck to paycheck and living off of government-subsidized food. I think God looks at that and he's ticked. And so, 
what we see is that this has been an ongoing situation. That all throughout history, people have risen and have tried to take advantage of the masses of people by claiming direct revelation from God, and yet, in reality, they're, they're just false prophets. So, the religious leaders, according to Deuteronomy 13, uh, Moses basically says, look, there's a test that you need to apply, and the test is this. You need to ask the prophet, by what name are you doing and saying and claiming revelation? So, the message is, if someone comes and makes a prophecy and says, God's going to do this, he's going to bring about an earthquake, you know, on, you know, February 1st, it's going to be 6.0. And if that person claims this prophecy and that prophecy never comes to pass and they claim to do it according to Yahweh's name, then they are a false prophet. You know, according to Deuteronomy 13, they're going to be taken out and stoned or killed. So these guys are asking the question, by what name have you done this? They're wondering, are the disciples the type of people that Deuteronomy 13 warned them of? Do they need to be on guard? Do they need to be alert? These are, you know, again, there may be a personal desire to protect and secure their own personal power, um, but perhaps at the same time, they're just genuinely trying to honor the Torah. But the point that I would make is this, is that this is the question they're asking, by what name are you doing this? And what we see is there's really, I think, two reasons as to why Jesus presents a power to them that are actually given to us or hinted to us there in the text. First of which, and they're kind of lengthy, so just listen to what they are, and you can read them up there. I'll put them up there on the screen. Is the first one is that I think Jesus is a problem to these religious leaders because Jesus is the resurrected sign, uh, and I wrote in parentheses, and reality. In other words, yes, Jesus rose again from the dead. It wasn't just simply a sign. He actually did rise again from the dead. But it's also a sign or signpost that you can look to, and it points to something else greater than what had happened. So Jesus is the resurrected sign of God's eventual restoration of all things. This is the story of the rest of the New Testament. This is what Paul writes about, right? Um, If you want more information about this, just check out Romans chapter 8. It's this great passage where basically Paul says, look, everything in all creation right now suffers under what we would call corruption or a curse. It's dying, all right? We, we, We know this. You know this firsthand. We are all dying. We are all facing elements of death. It's one of the reasons why we have said this before in the past. You need to groom yourself because you are always shedding dead skin, dead oils, dead stuff. Um, And unless you groom yourself and clean yourself, you begin to become smelly and disgusting. No one wants to be around you. And you got to shed that death off of you by taking a shower, by brushing your teeth. You guys get the idea, right? Following? Kind of? Both of you. All right. The point is, is that we are surrounded by death. And what Romans 8 is basically saying is that one day God is completely undo the order of death and destruction in its place, bring forth life. How do we know this? Paul's argument is because Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, religious leaders try to put him down. They try to kill him, try to crucify him. The Roman guards tried to make sure that he was dead. But God overcame their attempts to put Jesus to death. And what the New Testament basically saying in the story that we just read is that Peter and John are saying, look, we know that God is up to something in this, in this world, that he's undoing the death that we feel, that we taste, that we are constantly bombarded with, that we suffer under, that we feel emotionally over the fact that loved ones that we know that die too young, we feel the consequences of sin and death and darkness all around us. And what they would say is that, but God is undoing that. And we know that God is doing that because he's already begun doing that in the person of 
Jesus. He's not dead. He's risen again from the dead. And what Peter and John are saying is that this resurrected Jesus is the one that has taken this man that was crippled for 40 some odd years and has given him a brand new body. That God is beginning to break through. God is beginning to undo the sin, the darkness. In other words, what Peter and John would basically be saying, that this is a spoiler alert of what will happen to all of creation. God's doing it. So, Jesus is this resurrected sign and reality of God's eventual resurrection of all things. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, says this. I'll just read it because it's so good. He says this. Resurrection is a belief which declares that the living God is going to put everything right once and for all, is going to restore all things, to turn the world the right way up at last. And those who are in power within the world, the way it is, key phrase here is the way it is, those that hold power in the way the world is today, he says, are quite right to suspect that if God suddenly does such a drastic thing, mean put the world right, they, to put it mildly, cannot guarantee that they will end up in power in the new world that God is going to remake. So what does that equate to? It equates to a major threat. Your world is being undone. And this is why these religious leaders are like, they got the message. You understand that? They understood the message that Peter and John were basically saying. That God is about putting this broken, sin-filled, destroyed, deathly world to right. And we know that because he's raised Jesus, whom you, by the way, put to death from the dead. And not only that, this Jesus, even though he's no longer with us, is showing evidence to the fact that he's up to work because this man who is crippled is now walking. That's, that's the succession. That's the, the logic that's basically being presented here. That God is and has not abandoned this world, but he's actually appending, turning over, restarting everything. But if you cling to, if you hold to the elements of this world that are perishing, you're really bummed. Because at some point, all those things that are perishing, if you are holding on to those things, if that is where you find your identity, if that is where you find your source of life and who you are, then you're bummed. Because when it's destroyed, you'll be destroyed with it. Does that make sense? So the resurrection is a big deal. So the second thing is that Jesus is the, resurre- or the rejected stone of the new temple which God has begun to construct. And we pick this up later on in the story where Peter is approached by these guys. He's in the center of them. He's talking. And what he says in verse 9, I'll pick it up right there. He says, and if we are being examined today concerning the good deed that was done to this crippled man, by what means this man has made whole, been healed, uh, let it be known to you that all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Verse 11, he says, this Jesus, so again, listen real closely to what he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now, I mentioned this before, but uh, the Bible oftentimes, especially some of the sermons, many of the messages or monologues that Peter preaches are filled with references to Old Testament passages, where if, if you or I are not really biblically literate, or we're, we don't really know too much about Bible context, we just completely miss it, and we're just like, that's kind of weird, a stone that was rejected, what's that all about? But what this all about is actually, is, it's a hyperlink that's pointing to another important story. So if you want, why don't you turn there real quick to the uh, Psalm 118. I'll just read a couple passages out of Psalm 118. It's actually borrowed 
from this psalm. It's a psalm that's typically called a messianic psalm. In other words, it's a psalm that, or a song that's about the future coming of the Messiah. But a couple things that are really to note about the psalm is the way that it starts. And it has this repeated uh, refrain over and over again that keeps being brought up at the beginning of this psalm. And it's just kind of an interesting refrain. We'll come back to it in a moment. But he says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, in verse 1, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. He says, Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 4, let his steadfast love endure forever. You get the idea that this theme, this message is the steadfast love of God. So the question naturally is raised, what does the steadfast love of God actually look like? Um, What we find out at the later end of the psalm is that the steadfast love of God is what sustains and upholds and gives life to this lifeless or potentially lifeless nation called Israel, and really for us. Um, but what he goes on to say is that it's also possible to miss the steadfast love of God. Because that's where he then begins to say later on in the psalm, where he points out that the stone which the builders have rejected has become this chief cornerstone. And that's where he brings that passage. And so in other words, it's a psalm that in some ways is taken to point out that even though Israel may be looking to the steadfast love of God, it's also possible for us to miss the very thing that we're looking for. Because oftentimes God shows up in ways that we're not expecting God God to show up. And that's what we see exactly with Jesus, is that Jesus comes not as this conquering, crushing, oppressing, destructive type of a conqueror. He comes actually to be conquered. He comes, and he himself is oppressed. He comes not shedding the blood of his enemies. He comes being sh- having his blood shed by his enemies. You understand? It's an absolutely, completely upside-down inversion of all the expectations that people would have about God. Which begs the question, what are the expectations that we oftentimes put upon God? And which God is constantly letting us down. Is it really God letting us down, or is it that God is actually subverting, undoing our faulty expectations? Because our faulty expectations are just that. They're faulty. They're wrong. They need to be reset. And this is what we see that God is always up to doing. And what Jesus is saying, or what, what Peter says about Jesus, is the stone which the builders have rejected has actually become the chief cornerstone. So in this story, imagine it this way. Uh, a cornerstone is actually different than a keystone. A cornerstone is what would oftentimes be placed at the very corner, and then they would begin to use that as sort of um, as a straight line to then build out the rest of the foundation of that. And it was oftentimes the very first stone that would be laid. So um, they would oftentimes go down to a quarry and find a suitable stone, one that was probably uh, a perfect shape that would then begin to lead things into a straight way. So if you put a round stone, that would be pretty messed up. It would not lead into a right sound type of uh, structure. So you'd find a stone that would be suited for the location where you're going to place it. So the, the, the depiction is, is that these builders, uh, meaning the leaders of the temple, the religious people, the people that had sought to honor God, um, thought that they were honoring God, but the reality was is that they were building something in their lives, but the very thing that they're building actually has excluded the most important element of all, the cornerstone of God. Instead, they subjected or supplanted another cornerstone. That was not the cornerstone of God. And therein, we begin to realize, question, is who's familiar with that? It's like, that's, that's all of us. 
all of us, at some point, we have to just simply say, we tap out, we're guilty. We have, all of us, to some degree, built upon a false premise, false foundation. What we see is that this reality has led them to become offended, frustrated, angry, annoyed with Jesus because he's been rejected. And what really I think Peter and John are saying is that God is actually building a new temple, a temple that's not made with hands, cutting out of stones. It's a brand new temple that we see this imagery picked up throughout the rest of the New Testament where Paul himself would say, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is another way of basically saying God's presence, God's very presence, God's sacred presence does not inhabit brick and mortar. All right, you get that? God is, God is saying, I, I'm no longer being relegated to brick and mortar the way that I would have done in the past, but now I am going to inhabit flesh and bone. Human beings that were rescued, that were once lost, but now found, that were once marked by sin and defilement, but now are clean and washed and made new. And this is what God's saying, is that he's up to something brand new. And he's subjugating, subverting, throwing out all that which is part of the old. It's not that it's evil. It's not that it's bad. It's that it's run its course and it's no longer a part of the future of what Yahweh's bringing forth. What's a part of the future? It has to do with Jesus. What if my life isn't lived for Jesus? What if it's lived for something else that's within this world? Then please note that it, at some point, somewhere in the fine print, has an expiration date. And if you give your heart, soul, might, strength, energy, money to that thing at some point, when it breaks, and it will break, you'll break with it. Unless something comes in and turns that. And that something is what we see Peter saying is that there's hope. Because even though you rejected the cornerstone, there's still option for you to turn back to that cornerstone and for God to rebuild your life again anew. And this is what we see being offered. N.T. Wright, quote him one more time, and wrap this up, says this. Peter was saying uh, not only that Jesus himself had raised, had been raised, but that he was the start and the sign of God's eventual restoration of everything. That was bound to be bad news for the chief priests and the Sadducees. However much, it was exactly what plenty of others wanted to hear because that's what we're told is that 5,000 people actually responded to this news because it was extremely good news. So imagine, here you are, living in some outskirt podunk town in Syria or northern Iraq. All right, you've lived there and your family has lived there for centuries and you're part of this small Christian community, Christian minority, and for many, 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 many centuries, uh, you can date back your family origin all the way back there to maybe 300, 400 A.D., and now, all of a sudden, ISIS arises, and they pose this threat that they threaten to completely annihilate you. And all of a sudden, someone says, no, no, there is another force that's greater than ISIS that's actually coming to rescue. That would be extremely great news, because it means that all that you would be threatened to have lost is now going to be given life. In other words, in your mind, you realize we're dead. We are 
dead, and that hope comes to those that are dead, those that are in, in darkness, that are living under the threat of peril, that hope is on its way. So 5,000 people were told that day, received the message. So to the people that recognize, the way Jesus would say it, that it's not the, it's not the well that need a physician, it's the sick. So to the people that are content with their health and their life and their safety and all these little contingency plans that they put in place and their means by which to secure themselves, to those that live themselves in this life like that, the thought of God coming and rescuing you is absolutely, like, it's nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. It's superfluous information. But if you look at your life and you realize... I get it. I've seen the elements of corruption and brokenness, not only out there as a part of the system, but also in here and part of my heart. I'm sick. The corruption is not just simply out there. that I'm part of the corruption. And Jesus promises to come to undo that corruption in its place, offer life. And in the place of disease, to offer ease. Jesus becomes extremely good news. But if you want to cling to the old system, Jesus is a problem to you. And that's what we see. In conclusion, to finish this up, done, is we see the power of Jesus. And we see this in three different ways. One, in Acts chapter 3, we see the power of Jesus being revealed through the healing of this man. That Jesus is not just simply some uh, sympathetic uh, person that wants to help people but is powerless. Jesus is not just simply a good teacher that offers good advice. That Jesus is the king that was promised from long ago to come and undo all that which is broken, all that which is destroyed. Jesus has come not to just simply be a savior to Israel, but actually to the whole world. And he comes to not necessarily crush his enemies, but to be crushed by his enemies and in his place. He absorbs their sin, their sickness, their death, their brokenness, their disease. And in the place of, he makes broken people whole. So we see in chapter 3, that Jesus makes this crippled man whole. Second thing we see is that Peter is preaching the gospel. So we see the power of Jesus revealed through Peter preaching. And again, uh, I don't have a lot of time to kind of emphasize this. I'll do that more next week. But, you know, Peter's just this guy that's unskilled, uneducated. Uh, just uh, several months earlier, Peter's literally denying Jesus. Do you remember that story? So here he is in front of every single religious power broker in the world. And he speaks with this insane boldness. How? Why? Because the power of Jesus is giving him the ability to do this. Finally, we see the expansion of the kingdom, that God's kingdom is beginning to go forth and beginning to move forward, not by these great strides, per se, of like conquering kingdoms, but by individual lives turning their hearts and their affections and their sympathies and their desires over to God. And God's changing them. And to finish, I want you to think about this. Because um, it's a question that I kind of had to wrestle with and think about as I was studying and preparing for this. It's the question of, of does Jesus threaten me? Does Jesus threaten you? And the way that you have to answer that question is you have to really be honest with yourself. Because again, we can give the nice little Christianese answer, which is like, no, I love Jesus. He's awesome. But the reality, if you really understand what Jesus is up to, you have to come to grips with the fact that there is, there's going to be an element to which Jesus, yes, He does threaten you. He threatens everything about your life that you are clinging to that are part of the old way of life. You understand how absolutely severe this is? Because 
Again, like I said, in our nice little Christian comfortable bubble, we love to just think of a Jesus that's all nice and sentimental and happy and makes us all happy like that. But if we understand Jesus in the context of one that says, I'm coming to undo all that which is a part of or connected to sin, defilement, death, this past world, and in its place I'm bringing a new life. And we have to come to grips with it to some degree. Yes, Jesus will threaten us. He will be a problem to us if we choose to hold on to those things. I want to finish by reading a passage. It's a passage that's a lot of ways familiar. Um, Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. And uh, we'll just kind of meditate on this as these guys are getting ready. Uh, we'll just kind of move into singing and response. And, but Galatians chapter 5, verse 20, it's a passage where Paul is actually talking about to Christians about what the old life is, is like and saying that it's, it's passing away. The old evil, this, uh, broken, defiled ways of this world that are also connected deeply to death, all of that is passing away. In its place, God is bringing forth into this world life, forgiveness in the place of grudges, love in the place of hatred, gentleness in the place of aggression, peace in the place of violence. So if you're someone that says, I'm a violent person, it's all I've ever been, it's all I will ever be, please know that path is numbered, it's passing away. And when it passes away, unless you have an escape plan out of that, you will pass with it. There are a lot of things that we can look at in this world and be like, I'm glad it's passing away. We can all, I think, agree. Sex trafficking needs to be done with. That's part of the old way of life. That's one day Jesus promises to append, turn over. It'll be done. It'll be a footnote in God's kingdom. But there's a lot of other things that will be footnotes in God's kingdom as well. And that's what Paul's writing here. Listen to it. I'm reading this to you out of the message, and it's not a translation I oftentimes use. It's kind of a paraphrase of a paraphrase. But the way he writes this oftentimes is kind of filled with lots of great, colorful words. And I just want you to listen to how he describes it. He says this. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all of the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. Trinket gods. Magic show religion. Paranoid loneliness. Cutthroat competition. All-consuming yet never satisfied wants and cravings and desires. A brutal temper. An impotence to love or be loved. Divided homes, divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of personalizing, depersonalizing everyone into rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, and I can go on and on and on. This isn't the first time I've warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom because none of these have a place in God's new world. What we have is a God that says, I've come to undo all that. And if you are one that has been affected by that, there's good hope for you. Because what that means is that salvation has not only come, and salvation is coming. But if you are part of that system, 
if you are using power to subject and destroy and crush and to hold grudges over people and to be vindictive and bitter and angry. And you never are surrendering that to the king who's undoing all that. When he will one day finally completely append all that and turn it all over, unless there's a disruption in your life from those things that you hold on to, then you will perish when they perish. That's why Jesus is a problem. But to those that look at their life and say, yes, I'm a part of that system. I've been affected by that system. I've been crushed by that system. Jesus is the sweetest name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Because what we have is a Jesus, a God that comes in this world and says, look, I will allow the best that Judaism has to offer. Do to me whatever Judaism does. And I will allow the best that the earthly governments have to offer to me, which arguably Rome probably had one of the greatest of all empires, of all earthly kingdoms. And the best that Judaism and its religion and the best that politics by way of Rome had to give left Jesus oppressed, crushed, destroyed, dead. Because that's the best that it has to offer. Expiration dates. But see, the thing is that Jesus says, I was crushed so that you who are crushed under that system can be actually given hope, leveraged out of it, given life, new breath put in your lungs, forgiven from the past, but also at the same time, power given to you to help forgive those who have offended you, power to help love those who are your enemies. That's the hope that Jesus offers. So we're going to respond to Jesus. So why don't we all stand? We're going to respond. We're going to respond by singing, partaking of the communion. This is the bread, the cup, respond by praying. And as we come to Jesus, my encouragement to you would be to approach him as you would approach a king. How would you approach a king? If you think of Jesus as just simply a mere human being that's of non-importance, then we would approach him differently than we would approach a king. But if Jesus is truly king, let's approach him as a king. Say, to him, take my life, search it, areas that I've been troubled by you, I I, want to tap out and surrender those over to you. So my encouragement to you as we respond, open your heart up to this king that wants to bring healing and wholeness to your brokenness. Sound good? Let's sing, let's partake of communion, let's respond.